welcome to the Film Geezers Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Film Geezers Podcast. I'm Robbo. I'm joined as always by Cheeto. Hello. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, our podcast, we covered the greatest uh, opening scenes or in- intros in uh, in films. And so today, we're going to talk about the actual outros or the closing scenes. <clears throat> and what I'm going to do is when when we post this, this podcast, um, I always add a post onto the website, filmgeezers.com. Um, and what I'll do is I'll... Uh, link to all the videos that we're going to be all the films we're going to be talking about today so you can actually watch the outros it's possible you may never you may not have seen uh, some of the films that we're talking about today so why is the last scene in the film always so important because it's the last thing the audience are left thinking about so i don't know about you it's frustrating when a good film disappoints really with a poor or weak ending yeah a great ending should leave an audience thrilled, shocked, and thoroughly satisfied. And in some cases, it ends on an unexpected twist. So the plot twist happens right at the end of the film, mm. which which kind of changes the whole film in some ways, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, sometimes it ends on a thrilling action moment, or it just wraps perfectly wraps up the story. And in some films, they don't have an ending, which is, I quite like actually. Yeah. When they leave it on a, an open ending or a or a cliffhanger, way, it's up to the audience to decide or to, to think about what might have happened. So I want to get put you on the spot again and get you to go first. Uh, I'll go first. Okay. <laughs> uh, my first film is Psycho. Psycho is a 1960 thriller film directed by Alfred Hitchcock. The plot centers on an encounter between on the run embezzler Marion Crane played by Janet Lee, and Shire Motel proprietor Norman Bates, played by Antti Perkins, and its aftermath, in which private investigator Milton Arbogast, played by Martin Balsam, Marion's lover Sam Loomis, played by John Gavin, and her sister Lila, played by Vera Miles, investigate the cause of her uh, disappearance. The ending. As Lila and Sam go to the Bates Motel to investigate the disappearance of Marion, the plans for Lila to talk to the mother in the Bates mansion, and for Sam to distract Norman. Norman becomes suspicious and knocks Sam out. We cut to Lila looking around the house. As she comes downstairs, she spots Norman bombing his way up the outside stairs towards her position. She hides on the basement stairs as Norman makes his way up to the second floor. She's about to make her way back up and out of the house when she spots the basement door. Lila makes her way down into the basement and is greeted with another door. She makes her way through the door and is shocked to see Mrs Bates sat in a chair in the corner of the room facing away from her. She makes her way towards Mrs. Bates and calls her name. She taps her shoulder and Mrs. Bates turns around. She is, real, she is revealed to be dead, a corpse in fact. The camera cuts to Lila as she jumps back in horror and lets out a blood-curdling scream. In doing this, she hits a light bulb in the room. She turns to the door and we can hear footsteps coming towards her. We see Norman rush into the room, him wearing his mother's clothes and wig, holding a huge kitchen knife in his right hand. Bernard Herman's iconic psycho score filling the scene. Norman has a massive grin on his face, like he really enjoys what he's doing. He runs towards Lila, but is intercepted by Sam, who grabs a knife and intervenes. We get shots of Lila, Mrs. Bates' corpse, and her wig on the floor. At the police station, the psychiatrist explains how he has a split personality, how his mother has taken over his mind. When he kills, he is his mother. 
He asks for a blanket and we get the iconic speech from Mrs. Bates. It's sad to see when a mother has to speak the words that condemn her own son, but I couldn't allow them to believe that I would commit murder. They put him away now, as I should have, years ago. He was always bad and in the end he intended to tell them I killed those girls and that man. As if I could do anything except sit and stare, like one of his stuffed birds. Well then no, I can't even move a finger and I won't. I'll just sit here and be quiet, just in case they do suspect me. They're probably watching me, well let them, let them see what kind of person I am. I'm not even going to swat that fly. I hope they are watching, they'll see, they'll see and they'll know and they'll say why she wouldn't even harm a fly. Obviously we get the, the um, it's called a uh, Kubrick stare isn't it? Mm -hmm. Very famous um, shot we see in multiple movies of uh, Andy Perkins, he just, uh, when he says she wouldn't even harm a fly, he just let, like looks into the camera in, in such a devious like evil way and, and then cut to Marion's car being recovered from the lake and the film ends well, I think this is one of the best ending scenes first off this whole ending scene is tense from start to finish the fact that it takes so long for Mrs Bates' corp to turn, turn around it certainly makes your anxiety levels rise and also the fact we can hear Norma's footsteps approach the door before we finally see him for the first time in his mother's dress in full light it truly is heart racing stuff. This is the perfect ending to this film because it really does show us the type of character Norman Bates is and this ties in the ending. It showcases one of the best lines of movie history in the Harm of Fly speech. We learn so much about Norman, about his mother's personality has taken over him and you're like, yep, now the full movie makes sense. I love how Alfred Hitchcock is able to leave what's going on a mystery until we see Norman in all his glory. This makes for a tense ending and it truly puts you on the very edge of your seat. Like I said before, parts of the movies don't even make sense until the end. This is truly a skill only some have, and Hitchcock certainly has it. We get Bernard Herrmann's great score throughout the ending, and the ending wouldn't be anywhere near as good without it. And those are my reasons. Mm. Um, I don't know if you wanted to add anything or... No, I think it, it was... when I think I remember when I first saw it, it was... Um, it was a, a really, truly terrifying plot twist. Yeah, it was. Because... Um, um, Hitchcock did, really did hide it and I, mean, I know now sometimes it, it in certain scenes it does show us age but he did really hide it well didn't he mm. yeah. the fact I mean I remember the first time I watched it I I just don't know why there's just was something off about the scene and seeing Lila into the room and seeing Mrs Bates there you yeah. just knew something was, wasn't right didn't you and obviously it turned out to be that she was a corpse and she's been dead for the last couple of years, isn't it? And there's the ambiguity, did did he kill her? Did she die of natural yeah. causes? Did he finally have enough of his overbearing mother? Because I know, I know in previously in the film they go to the uh, uh, sheriff, don't, deputy, yeah. deputy sheriff, don't they? And he says that Mrs Bates has been buried for the last 10 years or something. Oh, and really? then he's like, well, if that isn't Mrs Bates, who is that? So there's a mystery yeah. up in the air, you know, but... Yeah. Hitchcock makes like plants that maybe it is, maybe it isn't, maybe she is dead, maybe she isn't, yeah. and who the hell is that that like in the house? But no, absolutely iconic ending, and and uh, it's kind of a two pronged ending, you know. Mm. I've, I've included the, the Mrs. Bates scene and the yeah um, Harmer Fly speech just because that that speech is so iconic with the yeah. like I said the Kubrick stare, but no brilliant and um, movie ending, Good. and that's why it's on my list. Good choice, right, thank you. Okay. 
So my first one is the 1956 Western, The Searchers, directed by John Ford. Now, Searchers is considered one of the best Westerns ever made, if not one of the best films ever made. Um, and it stars John Wayne and he, as Ethan Edwards. He's a Civil War veteran who, after an eight-year absence, returns to his brother's um, Aaron's ranch in West Texas. When cattle belonging to a neighbour are stolen, Ethan accompanies a group of rangers to retrieve them. Discovering that the theft was a ploy to draw the men away from their homes, Ethan returns to Aaron's homestead where he finds it in flames and Aaron, his wife Martha and their son Ben are dead and Debbie and her older sister Lucy have been abducted. Later, Ethan finds Lucy brutally murdered and presumably raped. This begins Ethan's five-year search for his abducted niece Debbie, his only companion being Debbie's adopted brother Martin Pauley. They determine that Debbie is being held by Comanche Chief Scar and is living as one of his wives. Ethan and Martin enter the Comanche camp and Ethan's kill Scar and they rescue Debbie. The question throughout the whole film is what Ethan will do when he finds Debbie. You're never sure if he's going to take her home or kill her as she's been living with the Comanche. In the end, Ethan sweeps her up in his arms and says, let's go home, Debbie. The two climb onto Ethan's horse and ride back to civilization. Ethan rides up to an old homestead and is greeted on the porch by smiling faces. Only this time, Ethan and Debbie are met by old friends, as most of their relatives were murdered in the Comanche raid. When the two approach the house, the settlers shower Debbie with affection, but Ethan's left behind watching silently as the ranchers escort Debbie inside. We see Ethan holding his arm against his side, framed in the door. He's staring inside, forgotten by his friends and family members. He turns and walks off into the distance, the door closing behind him, leaving us with one of the most bittersweet movie endings ever. So, yeah, I think that the doorway is a brilliant device to illustrate how Ethan is trapped between two worlds, the outlaw Western civilization. He's a throwback to an older time, a more violent age when the frontier was still wild. Ethan is a loner, a desperado who's broken his fair share of laws, and isn't above shooting a man in the back. Is not cut out for family life, and now that mission is over, he's outlived his purpose. When Ethan returns from his journey, he discovers a Texas that has become more peaceful, be more a more peaceful place. Only Ethan can't bring himself to settle down. He doesn't belong in this civilized world, and he really isn't even welcome there. None of Ethan's friends or family members invite him inside, and the door closes to lock him out. There isn't anywhere for Ethan to go. He isn't welcome anywhere. Much like the dead Comanche, Ethan is fated to wander forever between the winds. So I don't know if you've seen. No, I've never search, seen yeah. it. So. so it kind of opens. It opens in a similar way. He rides up. He's greeted by his family. Mm. It's all framed in in the doorway. The um, the exterior being brightly lit and the interior mm. just being dark. So yeah, it's it's um, it's a brilliant ending to. Because he, he basically, he's, he's been on this five-year mission to find his niece. He finally finds her, brings her home, and he, he realises then that's it. He's really no place for him. Yeah. And so he just turns and walk, walks away with sort of somber music playing over the end. And it does actually tug at the heart. It really hurts. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I think that's one of the, yeah, one of the kind of, one of the more brilliant endings, I think. In uh, Yeah, I know it's a film that is yeah. like... Um, regarded very very highly so I mm. do have to watch it but yeah I'll get around to that soon good choice right my next is Die Hard Die Hard is a 1988 action thriller film directed by John McTiernan the plot follows New York City police detective John McClane played by Bruce Willis who is caught up in a terrorist takeover of a Los Angeles skyscraper 
headed by Hans Gruber, played by Alan Rickman, while vis visiting his estranged wife. The ending. John makes his way down the corridor towards Hans Gruber, gun in hand, him having a major limp in his step. He yells at Hans, so that's what this is all about, a fucking robbery. Hans, holding John's wife Holly, with a gun to her head, tells John to put down his gun. John asks Hans why he nuked the whole building. Hans explains that when you steal 600 million, they will find you, unless they think you're already dead. He once again tells John to put down his gun. John, looking defeated, reluctantly puts down his gun. Holly is shook by this and displays a very concerned look. John put, puts his hands on his head and says, You got me. Hans rather patronisingly explains how John is still a cowboy and how Americans are all alike. He then goes on to say how this time, John Wayne does not walk off into the sunset with Grace Kelly. John with his response, it's Gary Cooper arsehole. Hansen tells John to zip it with the jokes. John says you would have made a pretty good cowboy yourself, Hans. In response to this, Hans says, oh yes, what was it you said to me before? Yippee-ki-yay, motherfucker. Hans is ready to shoot John, but stops at John's laughter. Hans himself begins to laugh, also laughing as Eddie, another one of the terrorists. As the guys are laughing, the camera pans to behind John. A handgun is taped to his back. John yells, Holly, to which he jumps out of the way. John quickly grabs a gun and shoots Hans, knocking him back. He then kills Eddie with a quick shot to the head. John finishes with blowing the end of his gun and saying, Happy trails, Hans. Hans falls out the window but manages to grab hold of Holly. We see a couple of shots of Al on the floor, also his POV of the whole ordeal. We cut to John trying to pry Holly away from Hans. This is when we are greeted with the iconic POV slow motion shots. Hans, still holding onto Holly, raises a gun and is about to shoot. John is able to take off Holly's watch. In doing so, this makes Hans lose his grip. We then see Hans from John's POV, POV in freefall, pure terror on his face. We then cut back to Al's POV and we hear Hans' body hit the floor. We see the aftermath of the events as John and Al finally meet in person. They hug each other, laughing hysterically. As John is being yelled at by Deputy Police Chief Dwayne T. Robinson, we hear screams in the background, and Carl, one of the terrorists, rises and aims his gun ready to shoot John. By the way, he was already presumed dead at this point. John ducks along with Holly, and Carl is shot. Who shot him? We don't know. It's revealed to be Al, and then the movie ends. And the reasons why this is on my list is because... You look like you're about to say something. Oh, no, no, no. Oh. You always come in with like a no, no, thing no, or something, you know no, what I mean? It's, um, it's a brilliant ending in which it kind of has a different tone. The film is completely balls to the war action. This ending is a tight, intense affair where we really focus on the characters and it completely works. Bruce Willis is amazing in this scene. Obviously, he's amazing in the whole film, but we're only focusing on endings. He portrays the character John McClane so well, even when he's facing death, he can't help but crack jokes and make light of the situation. Like Bruce Willis, Alan Rickman is also brilliant in this scene. He is as witty as ever, but he still keeps that dark, meticulous way about him. One minute you're laughing with him, the next you're thinking, what an absolute psycho. This just goes to show how great of an actor he was. I love the iconic POV, slow motion shots of Hans Gruber, hanging outside a window of the Nakatomi Tower. It helps heighten the tension as we have to watch the scene for a longer period of time, and it really helps capture the taut nature that is rife throughout the, en the ending. Speaking of slow-mo scenes, Alan Rickman's reaction to falling is genuine. They told him they were going to do a countdown, and I believe they let go of him on two. This makes it so much more impactful, and well, it's real as you can, it's as real as you can get, you know. I think the scene in which we see John and Al embrace is great. Over the course of the movie, they've been building up this friendship over the radio, 
and to finally see them both together, especially both survive this ordeal, it's just a really wholesome moment. I love the surprise at the end with Carl. This just keeps us on our toes and reminds us that this is an action thriller film. It also provides one last jump and it's great to see Al get over his whole ordeal with killing people. This is obviously something that was mentioned earlier in the film, which is another thing. It ties itself together and in turn it makes the scene so much more impactful. Oh, and one last thing, Die Hard is a Christmas film, whether you like to hear it or not. Its closing themes literally let it snow. So yeah, I just had to get that last <laughs> yeah, point on my okay. chest. I think we both agree that, yeah. don't we? Uh, yeah. Is there anything you want to add? Or... Yeah, because that's just one of your favourites. explained um, earlier in the film when Alan, uh, John McClane, are talking, Al, you know, he asks him why he's riding the desk, and he says, yeah, because he accidentally shot a kid, didn't yeah. he? And that's why he'd never drawn his gun no. since then. So that's the kind of the little twist at the end is that the fact one the guy who shoots him is out. Yeah, because when uh, Cole just comes out of nowhere and he yeah. points his gun and you see John and Holly duck everyone around them and you see this gun shoot but you don't know whose gun it yeah. is. But then you're like, hell, that's a that's a police revolver. And then yeah. you just see the camera pans down from the gun and you see it like Basically, his eye in the everybody's, side. Everybody's hit the, hit the ground, haven't they? Apart from and, Al. And he's just stood there with his gun smoking mm. and... Yeah, so it's very... Like I said, McTiernan just puts that one yeah. last thing, just to, that that ties up Al's little story yeah. in the film, narrative in the film, and, and it just, once again, it just keeps us on our toes. But yeah, absolutely brilliant ending and yeah. a brilliant film. It is. And it is a Christmas film, yeah. Yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> right, okay, my next one is um, Planet of the Apes, yeah. 1968, directed by Franklin J. Schaffner. Planet of the Apes is a science fiction film based on a novel by Pierre Boulle. It was actually adapted by Rod Serling, who is probably more famous for the TV series Twilight Zone. Oh, yeah. Um, and the plot is astronauts led by Taylor, Charlton Heston, awaken from t- deep hibernation after a near-light speed space voyage. Their spacecraft crashes into a lake on an unknown planet and the men abandon the sinking vessel. Before bailing out, Taylor reads the ship's chronometer as November the 25th, 3978. 2006 years after their departure in 1972 but due to time dilation their age was almost the same as when they left in 1972 the men travel through a desolate wasteland coming across eerie scarecrow like figures and a freshwater lake with lush vegetation while swimming the men's clothes are stolen and shredded by primitive mute humans soon after armed guerrillas raid a cornfield where the humans are gathering food taylor is shot in the throat as he and the others are captured now this scene when the gorillas appear mm. and they're riding horses and they're talking that that is that was, <laughs> that scared the hell out of me <laughs> when I first saw it as a kid. Can you imagine gorillas riding horses and talking? Arm, armed gorillas as well. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> um Taylor's taken to Ape City where his life is saved by a chimpanzee called Zira. Taylor discovers that he's on a planet ruled by intelligent apes who can talk and that humans are un- unevolved and are treated as vermin to be hunted and neither killed outright, enslaved or used in scientific experiments. Taylor convinces Zira and her fiancé Cornelius that he's in, is as intelligent as they are. Dr. Zaius, an orangutan and leader of the apes, seems fearful of Taylor, believing him to be some, sort, some tribe of human from beyond the ape borders and intends to have him castrated. Zira and Cornelius free Taylor and his companion Nova and take them to the Forbidden Zone, a taboo region outside Ape City where Taylor's ship crashed. Ape law has ruled the area out of bounds for centuries. Cornelius and Zero intent on gathering proof of an earlier non-Simian civilization. Zaius and a group of soldiers pursue the group 
and they take Zeus hostage where he admits he's always known about the ancient human civilization. Taylor and Nova are allowed to leave and follow the shoreline on horseback and eventually discover the remnants of the Statue of Liberty, revealing that this planet, alien planet is actually Earth, long after an ap- apocalyptic nuclear war. Taylor falls to his knees in despair and delivers the following iconic line. You maniacs, you blew it off. I damn you, God damn you all to hell. I think you should have been in this. <laughs> yeah. And that's kind of the plot twist right yeah. at the end, and that's why it's such a good film. And it's um, was that added in for the film, or was it always? In, it's, I, th- I think that- it was always because the 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 book I think is slightly different to the film in the fact that in the book the the apes are much more advanced oh, than yeah. they are in in the film. But yeah, I think it was always in the because I know sometimes films just add a twist in yeah. just to you know, but no, that is obviously one of the most yeah. iconic twists in film history. Um, now. You know, Chan Heston has been in a few post-apocalyptic films. I mean, mm. he made a Mega Man, yeah. which was a an adaptation of um, I Am Legend. Mm. He also made Silent Green, which was set in a. Just to let people know, obviously, spoilers are going to be in this <laughs> podcast now. <laughs> um, it's set in the near future when the human population's got out of hand and we're using up. You know, we've almost used up all our resources and things are rationed food and. This company produces this food stuff called Soylent Green, and Taylor, um, not Taylor, uh, Heston um, discovers that it's being made out of humans. So, yeah, these, this is a f- few of the films that he's made. Um, but when you look at Planet of the Apes, you've got to look at it in context of what's happening in the world at the time. You know, it's mid, it's late sixties. You've still got um, the arms race. Yeah. Um, You've got the Cold Wars at its high. You're only a few years after um, the Cuban Missile Crisis. So there was a real fear that there was going to be a nuclear war. And people were fearful of that. Mm. But then there's there's also a social commentary in um, Planet of the Apes of what was happening, um, particularly to do with class. I mean, you've got like um, yeah, 60s. It was the culture, you know, it was the social upheaval. You've got the... Like the civil rights, and yeah, all that. civil rights movement. You got Vietnam. You got the anti-war protesters and lots of things. Um, and you got this supposed, supposedly utopian ape society, but there still is is divide. You've got at the bottom. You've got sort of the gorillas who are the brutish warriors. You, in the middle, you have got the chimpanzees who are like the scientists and intellectuals. And then at the top, you got the orangutans who are like the the elders, the leaders, the uh, religious leaders and they they basically the ones who are in control mm. and you've got Zeus who was not only in charge of science but also faith which often doesn't yeah. <laughs> you know no. um, and they adhere to like the sacred scrolls um, and people are fearful you know the, the chimpanzees Cornelius and, and Zira uh, they're fearful about helping Taylor because of the repercussions that could happen, they could, you know, it could damage their careers. They could get accused of heresy and and uh, executed. So yeah, this society doesn't always seem as as uh, as good as it is. Mm. And then there's also a little bit um, people revisionists have looked back and thought, well, there's a comment on racism as well because you've got this archetypal like Heston at the time was his you know biggest probably um hollywood star going you know he's the sort of uh poster boy for the white middle-aged men yeah and he's basically being 
discriminated against because of he's a human. Yeah. And so there was a commentary on you know, racism. And you, and and, you, can, you can see that, can't you? Yeah, you can. Film. So, you know, when I first saw it, I mean, my first introduction to Planet of the Apes was there was a, 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 there was a TV series spin-off and it used to be on a Saturday morning. And I, and I used to watch that. But then when I actually saw this film, oh, it's Talking Monkeys. But then when you get older and you, you realise the messages that he's got, um, yeah, it's it's a really good film, really good ending, uh, really good twist ending. Because I remember when I first saw it, I just did not see that coming at no. all. And it was like, oh, no, he's back on Earth. It's one of those ones where, once again, like Psycho, it's one of those twist endings where you're like, okay, now that makes yeah. sense, doesn't it? You yeah, know? so definitely. I Honestly, like, it's, it's even one for people that haven't even seen the film yeah. that know... Yeah, the ending, wouldn't they? Yeah, and then they'd know the quote as well. Mm-hmm. But no, brilliant film and very iconic ending. Yeah, right. My next film is The Shawshank Redemption. The Shawshank Redemption is a 1994 crime drama film directed by Frank Darabont. The plot: It tells the story of banker Andy Dufresne, played by Tim Robbins, who is sentenced to life in Shawshank State Penitentiary for the murders of his wife and her lover, despite his claims of innocence. Over the following two decades, he befriends a fellow prisoner, contraband smuggler Ellis Red Redding, played by Morgan Freeman, and becomes instrumental in a money laundering operation led by the prison warden Samuel Norton, played by Bob Gunton. The ending, Red, fresh out of prison, follows clues left by Andy Dufresne to its location. Red finds a box buried at the base of a stone wall in the shade of the oak. How does Red know he's at the right location? It's because of the polished piece of quartz previously described by Andy, covering said box. Red picks up the box while checking his surroundings. He sits down. Red opens the box. He picks out an envelope inside a smaller envelope containing a large amount of money. Red once again checks his surroundings. The other item, a letter from Andy, himself. The letter reads, Dear Red, if you're reading this, you've got an out. And if you come this far, maybe you're willing to come a little further. You remember the name of the town, don't you? I could use a good man to help me get my project on wheels. I'll keep an eye out for you and a chessboard ready. Remember, Red, hope is a good thing, maybe the best of things, and no good thing ever dies. I will be hoping that this letter finds you and finds you well. Your friend, Andy. Red gets up and begins to walk across the field at a leisurely pace. We cut to Red, back in his bedroom. The chair Brooks used to hang himself in, in shot. He opens up his pocket knife and a voiceover that says, Get busy living or get busy dying. A line Andy said to him early in the film. He looks up at the structure Brooks suspended, suspended himself from. We cut to Red packing his things and he leaves his apartment. The structure reads, Brooks was here, so was Red. We cut to Red ordering a bus ticket. <coughs> we see him riding said bus with an excited expression on his face. While this is happening, there's a voiceover Red explaining how he missed his parole and that he's excited for the journey ahead even though he doesn't quite know what to expect. We cut to Red walking down the Mexican beach. Andy, who is sounding a boat, catches a glimpse of Red. They both have huge smiles on their faces. The camera cuts to a faraway shot. Red and Andy hug, and the movie ends. Now, first off, this is probably one of the most emotional scenes in movie history, and emotional scenes tend to be more impactful, as they can have a lasting impression on us. As well as being the mo- one of the most emotional scenes of all time, it is also one of the most satisfying ending scenes of all time. The fact we see everyone who mistreated our main characters getting their comeuppance and the fact that Andy and Red get to have a happy ending, it certainly is a great payoff. The movie makes you think that Red is going to commit suicide like Brooks. Instead he doesn't and it makes for a great ending, 
while also being tense. This is the perfect ending for this film because we can finally see the two best friends on the outside with their whole lives ahead of them. It's brilliant as it shows the strength of their friendship, the fact Andy was expecting Red to follow through with his plans, also the fact that Red was willing to risk missing his parole to go through with Andy's plans, and the fact that he trusted him. Yeah, like I said, it just goes to show that they are brothers for life. And um, it's still... Because this thing, the thing with Shawshank Redemption is it has a whole overriding theme of it is hope isn't it mm, like yeah. um, you get that from the characters the story and this ending is just I don't know why it's just filled with hope isn't it you know just to see them um, meet on the beach mm. um, it's some sort of um, Mexican name I, I don't know what yeah. the name is <laughs> yeah I saw it on, on written down I was like that's not even a word but yeah, when they hug and it's like they got their whole lives ahead of yeah. them, you know. And once again, it's just the the overriding thing is hope, mm. and that's why this ending is so great because it follows from the previous acts, and it, yeah, it's just once again, yeah. it's emotional when it sticks with you, and everyone knows the ending to Sure Shank, don't they? And I like how they kind of is Red going to go through with it? You know, yeah. is he actually going to go to Mexico or is he going to hang himself like Brooks did? Yeah, and I think that's the perfect thing. So um, him writing so yeah, Red was here too or whatever. Yeah, because um, obviously Andy is in prison for the murder of his wife, which yeah. he denies, and it's never quite you're never quite sure whether he did it or no. not. Um, and it's all about little victories, isn't it? Throughout yeah. the whole film, because there, there's a lot of there's a lot of um, bad things that happen <clears> to him, yeah, you know, unfortunate things, but yeah. they still both Andy and Red still keep yeah. that hope and uh, especially Andy but also Red with his with his parole yeah. you know what I mean um, yeah. he still keeps hope that even though he's been there for what was it like 30 years yeah, or something that he yeah. still has hope and, and yeah yeah, it's just the overriding theme and, and that's why it's on my list it's yeah. an absolute brilliant Good ending film. and brilliant film as well okay right my next film um, this was one of my choices for greatest opening scenes and it's got well I think greatest closing mm. scene as well um, it's Godfather 1972 directed by Francis Ford Coppola so as we all we all should know The Godfather is a 1972 crime film co-written by Coppola and Mario Puzo based on Puzo's best selling 1969 novel of the same name the film opens in 1945 in New York City at the wedding of Connie and Carlo Connie just happens to be the daughter of Vito Corleone the don of the Corleone crime family Vito's youngest son, Michael, who was a Marine during the World War II, returns home and introduces his girlfriend, Kay Adams, to his family at the reception. Shortly before Christmas, drug baron Solozzo, backed by the Tataglia crime family, asks Vito for investment in his narcotics business and protection through his political connections. Wary of involvement in a dangerous new trade that risks alienating political insiders, Vito declines. Later, Solozzo has Vito gunned down in the street. Vito's eldest son, Sonny, takes command. Vito survives and at the hospital, Michael thwarts another attempt on his father's life. Outside the hospital, Michael's jaw is broken by NYPD Captain McCluskey, Solozzo's unofficial bodyguard. The, Col- Col- sorry, the Corleone's plot to murder Solozzo and McCluskey, feigning a desire to settle the dispute. Michael meets them in the Bronx restaurant where he kills both men. Despite a clampdown by the authorities, war breaks out between the five families and Vito fears for his family. Michael takes refuge in Sicily and his older brother Fredo is sheltered by Mo Green in Las Vegas. 
Sonny attacks Carlo on the street for abusing Connie and threatens to kill him if it happens again. When he does, Sonny speeds to their home but is ambushed at a highway toll booth and violently murdered by a rival gangsters wielding submachine guns. Devastated by Sonny's death and realising that the Tagliers are controlled by the now dominant Don Barzini, Vito attempts to end the feud. He assures the five families that he will withdraw his opposition to their heroin business and forgo avenging Sonny's death. His safety guaranteed, Mike returns home to enter the family business and marry Kay, promising her that the business will be legitimate within five years. In 1955, Vito suffers a fatal heart attack. Michael assumes his father's role as godfather and head of the Corleone family. His first act as godfather is to order the murder of the other New York Dons. He later extracts a confession from Carlo, who was complicit in setting up Sonny's murder, and orders Carlo's murder. So getting on to the final scene. Connie hysterically confronts Michael about Carlo's death, correctly assuming that her husband was killed by on the Don's orders. Michael neither confirms nor denies Connie's accusations and merely holds her before sending his sister downstairs to see a doctor. The confrontation takes place in full view of Michael's wife Kay, who has been under strict instructions to never ask about the family. Unable to help herself, Kay asks whether Michael really was involved in Carlo's death. Responding with anger at first, Michael calms down and allows Kay to ask one single question about his affairs. She does so, and Michael, as cool and resolute as ever, denies having any involvement in Carlo's death. A wave of relief spreads over Kay's face, but after she leaves the room and looks back, she sees Michael surrounded by his three capos, all hugging their leader and kissing his hand. Looking directly at Kay, Alneri slowly moves towards the office door and closes it, leaving Kay with a mixture of distrust and stark realisation. This scene is the true final phase in Michael's evolution into a mafia boss. The ease in which he lies to his wife acts as a sign that their relationship has become far more distant since those early scenes, and is a foreboding sign of things to come. In shutting the door on Kay, the Godfather highlights both Michael's decision to close his wife out of his business, and the Mafia's general attitudes towards a woman's role. While Michael at the outset of the film treated Kay with dignity and respect, Michael is now the archetypal Don, running the family business in a closed office, while the women of the house see to their maternal and domestic duties, those two worlds forbidden ever to collide. The expression on Dan Keen's face that acts as the Godfather's final shot indicates that, despite initially being relieved by Michael's denial, her trust towards him has been irreversibly damaged. Kay no longer feels she truly knows what kind of man her husband is, or what he's capable of. So, essentially, it, it's about, um, obviously, Michael. The whole film, really, I think it's about Michael, isn't it? Yeah, it's really. kind of centred yeah. on him. He comes home from the <clears> war. He doesn't initially doesn't want anything to do with the family business. But after after the attempt on his father's life, that's when he gets involved. Um, he commits uh, basically assassination, goes to Sicily. While, while he's in Sicily, he gets married. His wife is accidentally killed. Um in a car bomb which was intended for him so that kind of embitters him obviously mm. he comes back Sonny's dead uh, Fredo's in no fit state to, to take over the family so it's kind of left to him so he, he then ends up becoming the Don and it's this this closing scene that really just cements that that yeah. he, he's, he is completely changed mm. he's now the godfather it's like because they're clo- obviously closing yeah. the doors it's like They've closed the chapter of yeah. that part of his life, and now he's now the Don, yeah. and they refer to him as, as the Godfather. The yeah, as Godfather. Aren't they? So yeah, brilliant ending. Yeah, absolutely brilliant. And obviously, everyone knows 
what great film it is, mm-hmm. one of the best of all time. But yeah, like I say, if you've never seen this, I will post all all the uh, videos um, yeah. online when when this this podcast goes live. Very good choice. All right, on to my next film, um, Seven. Seven is a 1995 thriller film directed by David Fincher. The film tells the story of David Mills, played by Brad Pitt, a detective who partners with the retiring William Somerset, played by Morgan Freeman, to track down a serial killer who uses the seven deadly sins as a motive in his murders. The ending... Just to put things into context, John Doe, played by Kevin Spacey, is five kills deep. He walks into the police station covered from head to toe in blood and surrenders. He offers to lead the police to his last two victims, but there's a catch though. Doe wants things done his way, or he'll plead insanity. John Doe reveals his sixth victim in a remote field outside of the city. Mills and Somerset, along with Doe, are waiting around at said field, when a courier service van shows up. The man gets out and says that he has a package for Mills. He then says that someone paid him $500 for it to be delivered to this location at this exact time, 7 o'clock. Somerset opens the box and is is taken back by by its contents. He tells the chopper to stay back, that John Doe has the upper hand. He runs over to Mills and yells at him to put his gun down. While Somerset is making his way over, Doe says to Mills, I'm trying to tell you how much I admire you and your pretty wife Tracy. Mills has a concerned look on his face. Doe explains how it is easy to obtain someone's information and that he visited Mills' place of residence. He explains how he tried to live like Mills, but it didn't quite work out, so he took a souvenir, her pretty head. Mills asks Somerset what Doe is on about. Somerset's still yelling at him to put his gun down. Mills asks Somerset in a concerned tone, show me the box, what's in the box? As Doe is, selling, as Doe is telling Mills how much he envies him in a much patronising way, Mills says, you lie, you're a fucking liar, shut up. Somerset explains to Mills that that's what Doe wants, that he wants you to shoot him. Mills, still denying everything Doe has said. Doe tells Mills, become vengeance, David, become wrath. Mills now begins to beg Doe to admit that she's alive, that she's safe. In response to this, Doe explains how she begged for her life and for the life of her baby inside of her. Mills doesn't know that she was pregnant. David, now holding his gun towards Doe's head, is fighting back the tears. Somerset says to Mills, David, if you kill him, he will win. We then get the iconic shots of Mills shouting, oh God, over and over again in a disgusted tone, his gun still pointing at Doe. Tracy flashes up on the screen and Mills shoots Doe at point blank rage, shooting his corpse a few more times. And now these are the reasons why it's on my list. This is a tense, perfect scene for this type of movie. So many things are happening at once that it puts us on edge. I was very scared for our protagonist's safety. The fact that it isn't a good ending, it makes it so much more memorable. I mean, if this would have been a happy ending, yeah, it would still be remembered as a great film. But the bad ending puts it into that classic area for me. I mean, if it wasn't for the ending, we would have never got the iconic Ross in the Box line. Everyone knows that line and what movie it's from, film fan or not. So yeah, they just got that spot on with the ending. The seven deadly sins are gluttony, greed, sloth, lust, pride, envy and wrath. Doe uses the first five as motives for murders. The sixth... He explains how he envies Mills' life. The seventh is committed by Mills himself, by killing Doe and showing his wrath. This is such a great, this is such a great story writing, and it makes such a better watch than if Doe was to just use all seven of his motives. You know, the fact that it involves one of our main characters and his plans, it makes for a truly gripping watch. 
In the ending scene, we get great acting performances from all parties involved. They truly do showcase the acting abilities they possess. I love how the ending makes you think. The fact that it gradually bleeds the information out through dough. This only helps you put you on the edge of your seat. And once again, it makes for a much more impactful, much more memorable watch. I love the way in which Mills suddenly realises what Doe has done. It's like a pipe bomb. And like I said before, we get some great acting from Pitt. Particularly that of when he starts to break down. And yeah, that's that's the many reasons yeah. was on my list. But the I would say the main one is, is I think it was, it was very smart for, for Fincher to um, only make Doe kill five people. Obviously, he... His envy is the sixth um, deadly sin, and then to make Mills use the, mm. seventh, the seventh deadly sin, you know, um, it's a smart story yeah. writing, and you can tell that some thought's been put into it as well, can't you? Again, it's it's um, it's it's not a neat ending, is it? No, it kind of uh, because you never find out who Doe is, who he yeah. really is. It just it kind of ends yeah. abruptly, and it's like you you kind of left to think, well, what hap- what's going to happen to to Brad Pitt's character mm. and you know it's, it's and you just think if that was if that was brought to a close then I, I don't think that would be no, any more it memorable would, would it no. no it was just that perfect no, scene for that perfect movie and yeah. yeah I think after obviously um, Mills shoots Doe yeah. he just gets he just gets um, a wagon comes picks him up and takes yeah. him away doesn't it and yeah. it's just like the end the film ends there yeah. doesn't it you know but yeah it's just such a memorable scene and, and obviously one whether you're a film fan you'll know wouldn't you yeah. like the put down uh, what's in the box like and all that you know so yeah yeah pretty good choice thank you okay my next one is One Flow of the Cuckoo's Nest mm. 1975 directed by Milos Forman One Flow of the Cuckoo's Nest is a psychological comedy drama based on the 1962 novel of the same name by Ken Kesey now this actually was played um, on stage by uh, Kirk Douglas played oh, okay. um McMurphy and he was going to play it in the film but it was considered too old but it's still produced by Michael Douglas so that's why because I think they bought this they bought the rights to this the actual book and developed the screenplay so yeah, mm. just a bit of trivia there <laughs> <laughs> so in 1963 Randall McMurphy played by Jack Nicholson is on an Oregon work farm for statutory rape of a 15 year old girl gets himself transferred to a mental institution to avoid the hard labour. The ward is dominated by head nurse Mildred Ratchet, a cold, passive-aggressive tyrant who intimidates her patients. There he meets an assaulted group of inmates, including tall, deaf, mute Native American Chief Bromden, and also uh, Lord DeVito. Yeah, my guy. (laughs) (laughs) Ratchet sees McMurphy's lively, rebellious presence as a threat to authority. An oddly tells... Uh, Murphy that the judge's time sentence doesn't apply for people who are deemed to be criminally insane so McMurphy makes plans to escape Ratchet sends Chief and McMurphy to the shop, shop as a result of this insubordination while awaiting their punishment McMurphy offers Chief a stick of gum and discovers he can speak and hear having feigned his deaf muteness to avoid engaging with anyone McMurphy and Chief make plans to escape but decide to throw a secret Christmas party for their friends after Ratchet and the Ardleys leave for the night. McMurphy sneaks two women, Candy and Rose, and bottles of alcohol into the ward. He bribes a guard to allow this. After the party, McMurphy and Chief prepare to escape and invite another patient, Billy, to come with them. Billy refuses but asks for a day with Candy. 
McMurphy arranges for him to have sex with her. McMurphy and the others get drunk and McMurphy falls asleep instead of making his escape with the chief. Ratchet arrives in the morning to find the ward in disarray and most of the patients passed out. She discovers Billy and Candy together and aims to embarrass Billy in front of everyone, but Billy manages to stand up to Ratchet. When she threatens to tell his mother, Billy cracks under the pressure and Ratchet has him placed in the doctor's office. Moments later, McMurphy punches an orderly when trying to escape out of a window with the chief, causing the other orderlies to intervene. Meanwhile, Billy commits suicide by slitting his throat with broken glass. Ratchet tries to ease the situation by calling for the day's routine to continue as usual, and an enraged McMurphy strangles Ratchet. The orderly subdue McMurphy, saving Ratchet's life. Sometime later, Ratchet is wearing a neck brace and speaking with a weak voice. McMurphy is nowhere to be found, leading to rumours that he's escaped. Later that night, Chief sees McMurphy being returned to his bed. He greets him, elated that McMurphy had kept his promise not to escape without him, but notices McMurphy is unresponsive and physically limp, and discovers lobotomy scars on his forehead. Chief tearfully hugs McMurphy and says, You're coming with me, before smothering him to death with a pillow. So this is the, the end scene, is when the chief lifts the hydro, hydrotherapy fountain off the floor, smashes it through the window gates and escapes alone, all while the remaining prisoners, having been woken up by the glass-breaking noise, watch and cheer him on. And this is why um, I've chosen this, because it's quite a sad ending. Yeah. By the end of the film, Ratchet wins and Mac loses. Chief represents a one small victory that McMurphy's attempts to liven the war brings, but everyone else falls right back into line with the status quo that Mac desperately tried to change. Chief knows that someone like McMurphy, who is so full of life, would never want to live after being lobotomized. Being a prisoner on Ratchet's ward was hard enough for Mac without being a prisoner in his own body. After a goodbye hug, Chief makes a choice he believes McMurphy would make for himself by suffocating with a pillow. The scene is hard to watch, as Mac's body involuntarily fights back, but Chief succeeds and he finally feels like he's done all he can do on the ward, later escaping Ratchet's reach. Whether he did the right thing is left up to the viewer. Out of all the characters on Ratchet's War, McMurphy impacts Chief the most. By watching Mac refuse to take anything lying down, Chief learns how to be as big in his actions as he is in stature, and he feels like he owes that to McMurphy, as without him he would still be silently sweeping the hospital floors at the movie's close. So yeah, quite a, quite a sad, sad film. Um, but again, at the end, it's kind of an uplifting film because, you know... Um, yeah, Murphy's inspired the chief to do that one act of yeah. rebellion, I guess. Because what he, what he realizes is through the film, he says him and chief are there because they're caught odd, but the rest of their the rest of the patients are there voluntarily. So he just basically tries to make their life a bit mm. better. You know, he didn't need to, did he? No, he didn't. But yeah, but obviously then there's a struggle then with ratchet power struggle. Yeah. Um, but then, in the end, she has all the power. Um, yeah, and Chief realizing that he wouldn't want to live as a, you know, basically a prisoner in his own body, mm. frees him and then frees himself. So yeah, it's a good film. I mean, yeah, in my opinion, like everyone, I think this is pretty unanimous that this is like one of the best films I've made, isn't it? 100%. Yeah, I think so. And it's yeah. only one of yeah. three films to win all five. Um, of the major Oscars mm. as well, but yeah, no. If you haven't watched it, watch it because, yeah. like I said, it's one of the best films. Very, very sad, but very once again, yeah. very hopeful, very uplifting. 
I say it's kind of unsatisfying in a way the fact that you kind of want want it to have a happy ending. Yeah. But once again, it's another one where it's much more memorable. Yeah. The fact that it doesn't. Like, you know? Yeah. So yeah, I think so. Yeah, no, brilliant film, and um, yeah, thank you. I'll be moving on to mine cool. now. My next film is Gladiator. Um, Gladiator is a 2000 epic action adventure film directed by Ridley Scott. The plot: Roman general Maximus Decimus Meridius, played by Russell Crowe, is betrayed when Commodus, played by Joaquin Phoenix, the ambitious son of Emperor Marcus Aurelius, played by Richard Harris, murders his father and seizes the throne. Reduced to slavery, Maximus becomes a gladiator and rises through the ranks of the arena to avenge the murders of his family and his emperor. Now the ending. Maximus lets go of Commodus' dying body, his corpse hitting the floor. Maximus stumbles back, the whole stadium in shock. Maximus, now with a blank look on his face, we cut to a, short, to a shot of a set of doors. We then come back to Maximus. He takes a few staggered steps forward and raises his hand. He makes a push in motion. We cut back to the set of doors and we see Maximus's hand opening them. It is then we realise that we are seeing into Maximus's head. As the door opens, we are greeted with Maximus's property, the path leading up to his house. We cut back to Maximus in the Colosseum. A slight smile overtakes his face. Quintus, a subordinate general and friend of Maximus, grabs Maximus's attention. Maximus says to Quintus, Quintus, free my men. Senator Gracchus is to be reinstated. There's a dream that was Rome. It shall be realised. These are the wishes of Marcus Aurelius. Quintus orders some of the soldiers to free the prisoners. We cut back to Maximus. We see visions of his hand going through a field. We see two figures in the background. We cut to Maximus's face. He presents an almost shocked expression. He collapses to the floor. Lucilla, played by Connie Nelson, runs over to Maximus. Maximus asks Lucilla if Lucius is safe. She nods her head, and Lucius is um, Lucilla's uh, son. To this news, Maximus shows his pleasure. Lucilla tells him to go to them. Maximus's head falls to the side as he succumbs to his injuries by the way of Commodus. Lucilla begins to cry. We are then greeted to Maximus's body thrown across the floor. The figures in the background turn out to be that of his wife and son. They both have excited looks on their faces. Maximus is walking towards them as his son is running towards him. Lucilla then closes Maximus's eyes and says, You're home. The three prisoners gather around, along with Quintus and Lucius. We then get a beautiful line from Lucilla. Is Rome worth modern good man's life? We believed it once. Make us believe it again. He was a soldier of Rome. Honour him. Santa Gracchus asks, who will help me carry him? Santa Gracchus, along with Lucius and the prisoners, then carry Maximus' body out of the Colosseum. We then cut to Juba at Maximus's grave. He buries Maximus's statuettes of his wife and son and delivers his Now We Are Free speech. The film ends. And now, it's weird because... When I was looking around, like I, I can't believe it, but Gladiator was never on any of the lists of one of some no. of the best endings, and just I just couldn't believe it because to me this is well, obviously <clears throat> I, I love I love this this is one of my literally one of my favorite films. I know it's like per, personal opinion, you know what I mean, but to me this is one of the best it's one of the best endings of film history. Um, it also it, it also is one of the most emo- emotional film endings in history, and it is the perfect ending to this film. You know, this roller coaster of a film needed this roller coaster of an ending. Mm. It shows the character Maximus. He holds it on to life until he knows the prisoners have been freed. Once he knows Lucius is safe, and once he knows that Marcus Aurelius's dreams for Rome, that they will become true. This in turn shows the immense strength that Maximus possesses. You can see how loved and respected he was from his peers, you know, the fact that they carry him out of the Colosseum and they give him a proper burial. And like I said, it's it's 
It's the fact that he he literally the second Lucilla tells him everything's okay, he then dies because mm. he he didn't want to die without all the all of his wishes. You know. Um, yeah. I think this ending showcases some of the most beautiful dialogue in film history. For example, Lucilla and Juba's speeches. It's these lines that make me wonder, how can someone come up with this? Once again, this is one of the most satisfying endings due to Commodus getting his comeuppers and the fact that people of Rome are finally free. Also the fact that Maximus gets his revenge, something he so dearly wanted. But at the same time, it's a real bittersweet ending because Maximus is dead, but he does get to be with his family in the afterlife. Mm. I also like how the ending ties in with certain things throughout the film. Maximus has visions, but we don't know what they are about. We're then shown at the end. This is just a great story writing in great direction. The beautiful music by Hans and Melissa Gerard just accompanied the scene perfectly. I mean, I'll let you mean it when I say it, that the ending would be worse with, without their music. Um, and yeah, just, I just couldn't believe that this wasn't on any lists or anything. Like I said, it's, it's one of the most impactful, once again, another bittersweet ending. Yeah. But they, that's the thing, they seem to be more impactful than the bittersweet endings, you know? Yeah, because you kind of want it all to work out in mm. the end and, and you know, I th- I think it like, to be a happy ending. Yeah, it's easy for the... Um, it's easy for us as a viewer to yeah. be quite selfish because like, oh, we want Gladi- uh, yeah. Maximus to live but in reality then you, yeah. you take a step back you're like okay he gets to be with his family so that's much, much better ending yeah. for him you know well, quite often in these films the, the, the main protagonist has to sacrifice himself yeah for the good the, for the sort of the um, the greater good yeah in, in, and that's exactly what yeah, goes on exactly. but um, I just I, yeah. it is yeah Emotional, isn't it? And yeah, and they gave themselves quite a quite a tough time to come up with a sequel. <laughs> yeah, yeah. How would you come yeah, back from exactly. that? You kill off your main protagonist. They've, they've tried, haven't they? They they've tried, tried, they attempted to. Failed. Yeah, and I've seen no. some. I've seen some of the, the writing that they, they like try and explain how yeah. he's not dead and stuff. But yeah. now I mean, I, I I remember watching this in the cinema and just crying like a baby. It's just it seems every time mm. I watch it, even. If I watch snippets on YouTube, it just choke. You get choked up and stuff yeah. because, like, um, you're finally seeing someone who's who's willing to sacrifice himself, yeah. like you said, for the greater good. Yeah. But he also gets to be with his family well, as well. Because, like, obviously in the opening scenes, that the um, the Emperor Marcus Aurelius is dying. And he offers Maximus um, sort of a guardianship of of Rome, cutting yeah. out his son Commodus, and so he makes this promise to a dying man and he upholds his promise yeah. even though he's been put through such you know horrendous um, things happen to him and it's almost like you know his family dies he kind of gives up any kind of um, he doesn't care anymore no. it's become you know which is you can understand, understand. that yeah so and then then he fulfills you know the, the promise and then and like, like we said yeah. once he knows that that promise is, is yeah. going to be Gotta be fulfilled. Um, yeah, then then he passes away. Literally, yeah. probably a second after that, because he's he's probably holding on to everything he has. And then, uh, obviously, Lucilla, you know, tells yeah. him that that of course Lucius is safe, and and obviously putting Senator Gracchus in position of power. He knows mm. that he's he's a good friend of him, isn't he? Yeah, he's got Quintus there, and and he knows everything's gonna be okay. Yeah, and hopefully, like I said before, that that, that promise will be fulfilled. He he can pass away yeah just a very beautiful scene isn't it it is it is great film Mm. all right moving on uh my next film is raiders of lost ark Mm. 1981 directed by steven spielberg 
we cover this film again in podcast 16 greatest opening scenes mm. but i think it has a great ending yeah. as well so we are now raiders opens with the archaeological professor stroke antiquity hunter indiana jones meeting with military intelligence they're interested in why the Nazis are excavating at Tanis in Egypt and why a telegram they intercepted mentions Indy's old mentor, Abner Ravenwood. Indy deduces that the Nazis are looking for the Ark of the Covenant, the chest the Hebrews place a piece of the Ten Commandments. When Indy shows the intelligence men a picture of the Ark, along with telling them the law that whichever army carries the Ark becomes invincible, they now fully re begin to understand Hitler's interest and recruit Indy to retrieve the Ark. The rest of the film... Is a roller coaster ride that takes us from Nepal to Egypt and eventually to an island in the Aegean near Crete. Indy finds the Ark as it taken off of him by the Nazis and steals it back again only for the Nazis to finally recover it. The Nazis conduct a ceremony to open the Ark led by Indy's arch nemesis Belosh. Oh, that's Belosh. Belosh. Such a nurse. On opening the Ark, they only find sand inside, but then it re releases spirits, bolts of energy and flames that kill all the assembled Nazis before sealing itself shut. Back in Washington, D.C., the United States government rewards Jones for securing the Ark, despite Jones's insistence that it should be handed over to the museum. The agents assure Indy that the Ark has been moved to an undisclosed location and has been studied by... Top men. Who? Top men. <laughs> <laughs> the film closes with the Ark being sealed in a crate and reference numbers stenciled on the side before finally being wheeled down the aisle of a huge dimly lit warehouse surrounded by countless similar artefacts. So the ending is quite a plot twist. After everything India has been through for the Ark to end up in a warehouse is a bit of a letdown, but it's a punchline to a joke the entire film was setting you up for. The Ark may not be the real prize, and he may have lost the Ark, but he healed the relationship he had with Marion and stopped the Ark falling into the hands of the Nazis. That may have been the real prize. Mm. So, like any good MacGuffin, you know, quite. Uh, and you look at every Indiana Jones film, right? Temple of Doom, uh, Last Crusade, and Crystal Skull. He never actually gets the artifact that he's looking for. No, he doesn't. So, yeah. Stone, he returns to the villages. Last Crusade, he you can't, can't take so can seal. You? Crystal Skull, that goes back to the alien or yeah. whatever. So, yeah, it's a common theme, I think. I, oh, that's what I never even <laughs> noticed as well. But that's, that should be a, a real, you know, that should be the, what happens to MacGuffins. You should never actually be able to get it or yeah, find it. You know. It's kind of boring if they get it, in there, yeah. you know what I mean? But... <laughs> Because like earlier in the earlier in the film when they're talking to the intelligence men and, and um, it's never actually implicitly said that the museum are going to get the ark. No, they just assume it that that they will. So yeah, and I think yeah, it's, it's it is kind of the biggest build up to a punchline. Yeah, as well, because it's quite funny. It is and obviously we do see we do see the ark again. At the start of uh, Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, they do yeah, because they visit the warehouse looking for that alien. Because I believe one of the soldiers like kicks yeah, and kicks the, the box and it falls over, yeah. doesn't it? But yeah, I think it's a it's a great ending. Mm. Yeah, really and that's good. the thing. Look, we don't need to explain no. all this. Like, everyone knows yeah. Raiders, don't they? Like I say, a lot, of the you know, a lot of the time, it's it's like with Lord of the Rings. They say, you know, it's not about getting there; it's, it's the, journey. the journey you take, and and the the sort of changes that that happen yeah. and that you go through, and and the experiences you have. So, yeah, and uh, that's again, exactly that's yeah. exactly what Indiana Jones franchise is about: is. the experiences. Isn't yeah, it? 
But no, absolutely brilliant film. Like I said, everyone knows how great yeah. it is. Um, and a very good choice. Thank you. Right, my next film is Inception. Um, Inception is a 2010 action thriller film directed by Christopher Nolan. The plot, Cobb, played by Leonardo DiCaprio, is a professional thief who steals information by infiltrating the subconscious of his targets. <laughs> right, he just done... Just, <laughs> he just fell into the water of screen there. <laughs> He's offered the chance to have his criminal history erased as payment for the implementation of another person's idea into a target subconscious. And I just for context that the ending... It happens straight after they complete their mission of planting dreams into uh, Fish's head, um, and it kind of like is it is it real? Is it not? You know, but I just put put a bit of context onto it. Right, so the ending: Cobb wakes up in the same airplane seat he fell asleep in. He looks around, slightly confused. He's told that they will be landing in Los Angeles soon, and then we see our ca- other characters wake awake too. Fisher, played by Killian Murphy, of course, just thinking that the events that just happened in the film were just a dream. Cobb showing a shocked expression. Arthur, played by Joseph Gordon-Levitt, and I can never get her name right, Aridan, played by Ellen Page, are looking at Cobb with huge smiles on their faces, like job well done. Cobb catches the gaze of Saito, played by Ken Watanabe. He can't quite believe it worked either. We cut to Cobb approaching customs officer. He hands in his passport as he anxiously waits for approval. The tension is cut when the customer, the customs officer stamps his passport and says, Welcome home, Mr. Cobb. And uh, Cobb reacts to this in a shocked but cool manner and replies, Thank you, sir. And that's obviously because he, um, he, um, he was banned from the US once because mm. he's a career criminal. Yeah. Um, yeah. He grabs his bag and passes the other main characters, not acknowledging them as to not be suspicious. He's greeted by his father-in-law, Stephen Miles, played by Michael Caine. We then cut to Cobb's house, him looking confused. He gets out a spinning top and begins to spin it on the table. He then notices kids playing in the garden. They run towards each other and embrace. As this happens, the camera pans to the spinning top on the table. The movie ends. And now this is a brilliant ending because it just it shows just how risky intense the movie was due to the fact that our main characters are just as surprised as we are that their plan actually worked. I love how Cobb is still very wary of his surroundings. Our other characters have huge smiles on their faces, but not Cobb. He knows there's still a chance that their plan didn't work and how complicated brain implementation can get. Also, the fact they could be trapped in the dream world. Each sort of task he passes, you know, arriving at his destination, passing customs, collecting his bag, meeting his father-in-law at the entrance, arriving at his house and finally seeing his kids. It's almost as every time one of these things happens, it kind of makes him less suspicious of his situation. I love the spinning top bit at the end. Just for context, Cobb uses the spinning top as his totem to remind himself that he isn't dreaming. If the spinning top st- stops spinning, then he isn't, that's really hard to say, then he's in the real world. If it doesn't, then he is dreaming. When Cobb arrives home, still suspicious if he's dreaming or not, he starts to spin his spinning top on, on this table. He focuses on it until he hears his children. In embracing them, he completely forgets about his totem. The camera pans towards the totem and the movie cuts out before we can see if it stops or not. I think this is the perfect ending because it isn't a closed book. We don't know if Cobb is still dreaming or not. It's kind of a bit sweet ending because if Cobb was, isn't dreaming then his plan has worked. And he of course can be with his children. If he is dreaming then his plan hasn't worked and he is stuck in the dream world. This ending stays with you and it makes the movie so much more impactful. And also there's a, there's a bit where um, 
as it's, as it's focusing on, on the spinning top, the spinning top kind of like jars a bit, like oh my god, it's gonna yeah. it's gonna fall, and then it the movie cuts out before you can even mm. see it. And also throughout the ending, we get to hear Hans Zimmer's brilliant theme. Time It's perfect for this film. It just goes to show that the score can truly make or break a scene. So yeah, these are the reasons. I I love films that end like that, ambiguous. That, yeah, you know, you you you're never quite sure. If if it's real or not, mm. um, and that's that's yeah, because it leaves you wanting more, doesn't it? it? Does, but yeah, you just can't have it, and you always <laughs> want something you can't have, yeah. don't you? And I forgot to mention, there's another there's another bit that's very suspicious as to as to maybe it didn't work. He's still in the dream world because um, it's probably been like ten years since you've seen it in it. Inception, mm, yeah, I think so. Yeah, when he meets um, Michael Caine, is obviously his father-in-law at, at the gate. He, Michael Caine grabs his bags. And he points like he's looking to a taxi, and um, the, the, literally the next cuts, and then the next scene is him still pointing, but they're in his in his house, in Cobb's right. house. So it's okay. like they literally so teleported yeah. there. You know yeah. what I mean? So, it, right. but it's never so obvious that it's yeah he's either in the dream world or you know he's in the real world, and it's just an emotional scene because obviously he, what happened to his wife and and whatnot and and his kids, it's just. Very nice to see yeah. him embrace, and then yeah, just Chris Chris Nolan does that Nolan thing. I'll just plant that in the back of your head mm-hmm. that maybe it isn't real, but no, it's a brilliant film yeah, and very good ending as well. So good, good choice. Right. Yeah. Thank you. You're next. Yeah, it's it's the thing. 1982, directed by John Carpenter. Now I did, I did, um, I did my films in chronological order. Yes, yeah, same. Here. I've got to say, I think this is probably my favourite film ending of all time. Yeah. Um, the Thing is a science fiction horror film written by Bill Lancaster, which I didn't realise until last week that, that he's actually the son of Burt Lancaster. You're joking, really? Yeah. I always seen that on the poster. I was yeah, like, I know. Lancaster, okay, that's weird, <laughs> but that's, that's cool, though. Yeah. Uh, based on the 1938 novella, Who Goes There by John W. Campbell Jr. So it's set in Antarctica, a Norwegian helicopter pursues a sled dog to an American research station. The Americans witness a Norwegian passenger accidentally blow up the helicopter and himself. The pilot shoots at the dog and shouts at the Americans. That's uh, that's fully offended all Norwegian. But they cannot understand him, and he's shot dead in self-defense by Station Commander Gary. The American helicopter pilot R.J. McCready and Dr. Copper leave to investigate the Norwegian base. Among the charred ruins and frozen corpses, they find the burned remains of a malformed humanoid, which they recover to the American station. Their biologist, Blair, performs autopsies on the remains and finds a normal set of human organs. Clark kennels a sled dog, and it soon metamorphoses and absorbs the station dogs. This disturbance alerts the team, and Charles uses a flamethrower to incinerate the creature. Blair autopsies the new creature and learns that it can perfectly imitate other organisms. Recovered Norwegian data leads the Americans to a partially buried alien spacecraft in a smaller human-sized dig site. It's estimated that the alien ship has been buried for at least 100,000 years. Blair grows paranoid after running a computer simulation that indicates that the creature could assimilate all life on Earth in a matter of years. Charles is left on guard while the others go to test Blair. They find that Blair has escaped and has been using vehicle components to assemble a small... Uh, sorry, I ought, to, I ought to go back there. McCready comes up with a test to, mm. to see who's, um, who's the thing and who isn't. So Charles is left on guard while the others go to test Blair. They find that Blair has escaped and has been using vehicle components to assemble a small flying saucer. On their return, Child is missing and the power generator is destroyed. McCready specu- speculates that the thing intends to return to hibernation until the rescue team arrives. 
McCready, Gary and Knowles decide to detonate the entire station and destroy the thing. As they set explosives, Blair kills Gary and Knowles, disappears. McCready triggers the explosives using the stick of dynamite destroying the base. McCready sits, so this is the end of the film. McCready sits nearby as the station burns. Childs returns, saying he became lost in the storm while pursuing Blair. Exhausted and slowly freezing to death, they acknowledge the futility of their distrust and share a bottle of scotch. As they both eye each other with suspicion, McCready suggests that they'll likely freeze to death anyway, so they should just wait around and see what happens. In the meantime... Oh, sorry, see what happens in the meantime. This has led to a number of theories hypothesising which of the two men might be infected. It could either be Mac, Charles, or maybe both. Some theories claim Mac's bottle isn't filled with scotch but gasoline and perhaps he tricked Charles into proving he isn't human by making him drink it. Some theories think that little smile at the end means Mac is the thing. The closest thing to a definitive answer may have come from cinematographer Dean Cundy, who said Ian Carpenter used eye light to show who was human and who wasn't. If that's true, and you look closely, it's more likely the thing is Charles and McCready. So I won't have to go back and rewatch that. And see. Yeah, no, I'd never caught that. Well, whether it's McCready or Charles, there's a strong implication at the end that at least one of the two men remains infected by the thing and its alien powers, which suggests that the story is not over. So what happens now? If only one of them is the thing, it's quite likely it will eventually assimilate the other human body. And if that's true, it's also possible they could survive longer than normal human bodies. Could they hold out long enough to wait for help and pretend that they're just miraculous survivors? Could they feign death and assimilate other healthier humans? Could they let the ice reclaim them and return to the same kind of stasis from which the thing apparently came? These are all possibilities, but the overall point remains, this story is quite possibly not over, and the version of Earth on which this film takes place could very well be doomed. And I would probably agree with you that, yeah. just as an ending, this is probably yeah, the best... Ending of all time, yeah. Because it just—it's so ambiguous. It just mm. leaves it open, you know. Which is the first, is the first time I watched, when I, cause I watched it when I was about fifteen, when yeah. I really didn't appreciate every essence of a movie. Yeah, and I was like, "What the fuck, man! Yeah. Like, I want to see an ending." But now you can just—you appreciate that he didn't go down the the route of. Yeah, I mean, it's an obvious route. It's a tie it all up in a nice little bow and neat, you know, ending. But yeah, it just because if brilliant. if. John Carpenter did, you know, do the nice ending where Mac and um, Charles survive, yeah. and they're both not the thing. A conversation would be like, "Have you seen the thing? Yeah, it's a really good film." Yeah, that's where, it. Where as it opens up that conversation, like, "Okay, who is the thing?" Mm-hmm. You know, and it's just it. it once again, it, it it you leave the film wanting more as well, don't you? Mm-hmm. And um, I'm glad that they never tried to go down like the sequel. I know they've done a prequel, um, but yeah, I'm glad they never went down the sequel route and, and it just stays as a classic. And once yeah. again, it's so much more exactly. impactful of a scene yeah. as well. But then again, it leaves it open for mm. a sequel. Yeah. Um, Which is inevitably going to happen, some yeah. random. I know we've had the prequel to it, yeah. but you know, we haven't had a sequel yet. Would the sequel ruin it? Um, I don't know. It depends, doesn't it? It's 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 been what um, forty years yeah. now. So is it too late to have mm. a sequel? I, I think they just leave it as a classic. You know, it's a classic yeah, exactly. of, of, of horror, and yeah, <clears> I agree. It's it's probably the just for an ending. It's probably the best single ending Cause it's, in film it's history. Like a non-ending. Yeah, so it's, it's yeah. great. <laughs> yeah, it's just two guys sat down. Yeah, you know they they don't know who's 
who's the who's the thing they both could be the thing they both couldn't and that just it's that question up in the air but you know it just makes it so much more impactful and brilliant choice Thank you. brilliant film as well yeah right my last film is Avengers Infinity War and now obviously trying to exp- uh, fully explain the ending to this is very hard because there's a lot of people to get through and that so I've done it in quite a lot of detail just to warn you um Avengers Infinity War is a 2018 sci-fi action superhero film directed by Anthony and Joe Russo. The plot follows the Avengers and the Guardians of the Galaxy as they attempt to prevent Thanos from collecting the six all-powerful Infinity Stones as part of his quest to kill half of all life in the universe, this due to overpopulation. And now, a bit of context, over the course of the film, certain people have been protecting these Infinity Stones which offer different powers and... Um, once they come together um, they can have like unspeakable power you know Uh, but during the whole movie Thanos like I said before he tracks down each of these stones and either causes destruction or kills whoever's in possession of the stone and he puts it on on the infinity gauntlet which is the device that houses all of the stones and harnesses all its power and this is um, there's this Wakanda, there's this huge battle on Wakanda, and you think Thanos is defeated, and I'll just leave it here and I'll, I'll say the ending now. Thanos, played by Josh Brolin, with all six of the Infinity Stones, finally overpowers Thor, played by Chris Hemsworth, and snaps his fingers using the Infinity Gauntlet. A massive flash is sent out, and after a vision of his daughter Gamora, he teleports away from Thor and Captain America, played by Chris Evans. Steve asks Thor where'd he go looking around confused and defeated Bucky plays by Sebastian Stan comes into shot and says to Captain America Steve in a concerned tone he begins to turn to dust Steve and Thor look at each other what's up? nothing oh you just once again you just... no no no, yeah. no, no. Uh, sorry I didn't mean to interrupt sorry. you <laughs> Steve and Thor look at each other though with concerned looks many of the Wakanda fighters begin to turn to dust Spaceships have fallen to the ground, and Baku, played by Winston Duke, shows a scared look. As Black Panther, played by Chadwick Boseman, approaches Okoye, played by Denai Guerrero, he turns to dust, leaving Okoye stunned. We see Rocket, played by Bradley Cooper, and Groot, played by Vin Diesel, together. Groot turns to dust, Rocket saying no repeatedly. We cut to Wanda, played by Elizabeth Olsen, with Vision, played by Paul Bettany. There's a lot of actors in this, by the way. Played by Paul Bettany. His dead body lying on the ground. Wanda turns to dust. We quickly cut to Falcon, played by Anthony Mackie, as he too turns to dust. We see War Machine, played by Don Cheadle, yell out for Falcon. We then cut to the destroyed planet of Titan. Mantis says, something's happened, as she turns to dust. Iron Man, played by Robert Downey Jr. and Star-Lord, played by Chris Platt, both have concerned looks on their faces. Drax, played by Dave Bautista, turns to dust in the background, quickly followed by Star-Lord himself. Doctor Strange, played by Benedict Cumberbatch, explains to Tony, that there was no other way. He then turns to dust. We then hear Spider-Man, played by Tom Holland, say to Tony, Mr. Stark, I don't feel so good. He falls into Tony's arms. He says that he doesn't want to go, saying please to Tony. He begins to turn to dust. Tony puts him on the floor, and Spider-Man says to Tony, I'm sorry, as he, fu- as he fully turns to dust. In reaction to this, he cowers over. Nebula, played by Karen Gillan, says to Tony, he did it. Tony looks distraught as we cut back to Earth. Steve looks over Vision's body as Black Widow, played by Scarlett Johansson, comes into frame. 
War Machine asks Steve, what is this? What the hell is happening? Steve sits down and takes a minute. His response, oh god. We then cut to Thanos' cabin on his home planet, him walking out of said cabin. He kneels down and takes in a deep breath, admiring his beautiful view. A smile covers his face and the film ends. Now, this is one of the most shocking endings in movie history. I mean, everyone knew something bad was going to happen to the characters, just not them turning to dust. Also, the fact that so many major characters, Spider-Man, Black Panther, Doctor Strange, Wanda, Star-Lord, I truly can't believe what I was watching. As you're watching the ending, shock turns into that gut-punch feeling. So many characters dying. What's left of the vision of, of the living characters, they all look disheveled and defeated. I mean, what do they do now? I mean, even to the point that Captain America looks like he's done. Yes, Steve Rogers, the embodiment of hope, has been defeated. I also like the fact how the Russos don't waste any time killing our characters. They jump from scene to scene to show our characters' fates. I think they did this so once all of the death scenes are shown, they just hit you like a ton of bricks. This is smart writing and directing. I mean, it's pretty obvious, but as well as being completely shocking, it's also very emotional, especially Spider-Man's death. The look on the living characters' faces as they watch their friends die is truly heartbreaking. I love at the end, they show Thanos as having a huge smile on his face. He doesn't look like a being who's just killed half of the universe's population. This just makes him more hated, and it shows that he is truly a heartless person. And to round the whole seal, uh, ending scene up is Alan Silvestri's Infinity War score. This adds another layer of tragedy and emotion, and it sure does provide another gut punch feeling. But it's hard though, because like um, Thanos, he believes he's doing good. Because he's not inherently a bad person. You think, well, he's killed half the population. But loads of, like, the, the universe's natural resources are, are coming to an end and there's so much overpopulation that he... Literally, his own only motive for uh, killing half the population is is to to kill that, you know? Mm. Um, so, inherently, it's not a bad thing. It's just obviously the way about it is bad and he mm. even even yeah. goes as far as to kill his own daughter <coughs> oh right reluctantly kill his own yeah. daughter Gamora he didn't he didn't want to but um, uh, I believe it's the the red uh, stone and um, I don't know if you know Red Skull the mm. yeah Red Skull um, to acquire the red stone from Red Skull you have to sacrifice someone's life for pushing him off right. this cliff and he reluctantly pushes Gamora off his own daughter but um, that's why you're never quite full hatred on, on Thanos because he yeah. is in his mind he's totally right and he's trying to do something nice but um, yeah it's just it's, to say it's an absolute clusterfuck I've seen is, is <laughs> understatement like literally there's so many deaths like because there's so many characters in this film you just saw all the, all the yeah, characters yeah. I, I listed yeah. off you know and the fact that there was so many you'd, you'd maybe expect one or two major characters but the fact that so many major characters—I mean, Spider-Man, mm -hmm. Spider-Man, um, Doctor Strange, Black Panther—they all star or they all die. And I just remember watching it in the cinema, and I was just completely shocked because when they released Infinity War, we knew there was going to be an Endgame. We knew there was going to be another film, yeah. so we're like, okay, um, obviously this is this is like that Empire where Empire Strikes Back, where the the bad yeah. guys win, and then we have to get the redemption uh, in the next film. But we just didn't know how they were going to go about it, but nothing can prepare you for that you know it's still emotional it's still yeah. like I said that gut punch feeling and yeah it's just to see so many characters that like especially me I've, I've grown up watching these characters see so many of them die you know I mean it's just completely yeah. shocking but yeah it's just such a brilliant film and, and it really is like I said it's it's like you're getting punched fully like 
pummeled by Mike Tyson in the <laughs> in the stomach. So yeah, that's the reason why it's on my, yeah. on my list. Oh. Yeah, I've never seen it, so I can't really. No, that's why I was kind of leading it. You know what I mean? But, but yeah, it's you know, I think maybe some point I'll get round to watching it. Well, there's a, I think twenty five films in the MCU. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. You said it now, so. <laughs> Right, cool. So my last one is um, Sansa Lambs, nineteen ninety one, mm. directed by Jonathan Demi. It's a psychological horror written by Ted Talley, adapted from Thomas Harris's nineteen eighty eight novel. Um, it's set in nineteen ninety, where Clarice Starling is pulled from her FBI training at the Quantico Virginia FBI Academy by Jack Crawford of the Bureau's Behavioral Science Unit. He assigns her to interview Hannibal Lecter, a former psychiatrist incarcerated cannibalistic serial killer. Crawford believes Lecter's insight could prove useful in the pursuit of a psychopath serial killer named Buffalo Bill, who kills young women and removes their skin from their bodies. At the Baltimore State Hospital for the Criminally Insane, Dr. Frederick Chilton makes a crude pass at Stalin before he escorts her to Lecter's cell. So this kind of sets Chilton up as a bit of a slime bag, and you know. Mm. Um, although initially pleasant and courteous, Lecter grows impatient with Stalin's interviewing and rebuffs her. As she's leaving, a prisoner named Miggs flicks semen at her. Lecter considers this an unspeakably ugly act, calls Stalin back and tells her to seek out his old patient. This leads her to a storage facility where she discovers a jar containing the man's severed head. She returns to Lecter who says the man is linked to Buffalo Bill. He offers to, profo- he offers to profile Buffalo Bill on condition he be transferred away from, from Chilton, whom he detests. Buffalo Bill abducts Catherine Martin, the daughter of a United States Senator. Crawford authorises Stalin to offer Lecter a fake deal, promising a prison transfer if he prove, provides information that helps him catch a Buffalo Bill and rescue Catherine. Chilton secretly records the conversation and reveals Stalin's deceit to Lecter before offering a different deal. Lecter agrees and is flown to Memphis, where he meets and torments Senator Martin, then gives her false information on Buffalo Bill. Stalin visits Lecter, who is now imprisoned in a cell in a Tennessee courthouse, and requests the truth. Lecter says all the information she needs is contained in the Buffalo Bill case file, which Lecter returns to Stalin, as Chilton arrives and has the police escort her from the building. Later that evening, Lecter kills his guards, escapes from his cell and disappears. Stalin analyses Lecter's file annotations and figures out Buffalo Bill is called James Gum. At Gum's house, she meets Jack Gordon, but realises he is Gum and she pursues him into a cavernous basement and finds Catherine trapped in a dry well. In a dark room, Gum stalks Stalin with the night vision goggles, but reveals himself by cocking his revolver. Stalin reacts quickly and shoots Gum dead. So this is the closing scene. At the FBI Academy graduation party, Stalin receives a phone call from Lecter. He reassures her, I have no plans to call on you, Clarice. The world's more interesting with you in it. Lecter puts himself at great personal risk to make that call and his purpose was to find out whether Stalin was at peace and to express his admiration for her. In those brief seconds, one of the most dangerous and terrifying villains in screen history showed Stalin more respect than virtually any other man in the entire movie. In doing so, Lecter proves that he's not an unfeeling monster, but a human being, which is perhaps the creepiest aspect of his entire character. He quickly ends the call with a deliciously devious pun. I do wish we could chat longer, but I'm having an old friend for dinner. Hannibal is calling from an airport in the Bahamas where he watches Dr. Chilton, his enemy and former incarcerator, get off a plane and he follows him as he slips into the crowd. 
And let's be honest, there's something of a visceral thrilling knowing that lady's well, got to eat Dr. Chillin. <laughs> yeah. Chillin's a creep, and the general audience consensus is that he gets what he's coming to. <laughs> there's an unintentional trade-off for capturing and killing Buffalo Bill. Hannibal Lecter escapes. Clarice and the FBI have basically freed one dangerous psychopath in order to catch another. Mm. So, yeah, it's a, it's a great ending to a, yeah. to a film. Um, and again, it's, it's, it leaves that kind of open ending. Yeah. Um, but Which is it, a lot of the films that we've yeah, had in it. But it gives you an ins- more of an insight into Lecter's character as well. He's this, you know, he's this serial killer, but he's actually, he's very articulate, intelligent, well-educated, but he just has this one <laughs> flaw yeah. that he, he kills and eats yeah. people. Um, so, yeah, and, and the fact that he now is free... But he's, you know, he's given the courtesy of phoning her to see how she is and tell her that he's not out, he's not coming to get her. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's just, uh, yeah, it's very, I think it's quite a chilling ending as it well. It is, yeah, 100%. Yeah. And it's very iconic as well. Yeah. He puts the phone down, I think he puts his hat on. Yeah. And, and you see Chilton there. And then he, he, just, be- he begins to, like, steadily pay. Yeah, like, just steadily following yeah. and just disappears into a crowd. So, yeah, I think that's a very good ending. Oh, yeah iconic as well yeah and I think that's it yeah, isn't it I thought, yeah yeah just, yep, that's everything so all that's left to say is thank you for joining us hope you enjoyed uh, this podcast um, I think next week we're going to be it's going to be um, the unscripted as well yes we're going to do unscripted so we're, we're basically going to compile our combined list of who we think are the best directors so we're not going to do 10 each we're going to we're just going to have a little debate about it yeah and we're going to have a single ideas out there single list so yeah it's going to be a whole debate on directors so, so hope you can join us mm. uh, thank you very much and goodbye thank you <laughs>